Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. This is episode one, recorded in August 2018, and today I talk with Kim Ward. Kim is a registered nurse and lecturer at the University of Auckland. She has a background in intensive care and respiratory nursing and completed her doctorate exploring experiences of using therapies for sleep apnea. Kim has a particular interest in patients' experiences of healthcare and qualitative methodologies, particularly grounded theory. In this episode, Kim and I talk about how completing a PhD is not about being academically brilliant, but about having a thirst for knowledge and why being nosy helps with being both a nurse and a researcher. So grab a cup of tea, sit back and enjoy the interview with Dr. Kim Ward. Kim, thank you for joining me today. Um, thank you for Very asking. excited to have you here. And so for anyone who's listening in, my guest today is Kim Ward, Dr. Kim Ward, who is a lecturer in the School of Nursing at Auckland University. Um, I've known Kim for some time, and so it's nice just to be able to sit down and have a chat about where she's come from, um, her background as both a nurse and an academic now, and sort of some of her experience in terms of being a student, but also being um, on the academic side and how the two can inform each other, really. So thank you. Thank you. So this is a bit of a novelty for both of us. <laughs> so Kim, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your nursing background, maybe? Um, where you've sure. come from, how you've got here? Sure. Um, so I'm British trained. Um, I've been in New Zealand for 22 years um, and my career trajectory has been eclectic at best. Um, I've worked in lots of clinical areas which has actually been fantastic because it means my um, expertise, my, the base of my expertise is quite broad which is really useful when you're teaching and when um, you've got students as well that you're um, guiding and mentoring. Um, and so my most recent clinical experience has been intensive care based and respiratory based. Um, Which is where we met. <laughs> it is, it is. A few years ago now. Um, and so, and I've always been passionate about teaching as well, which is what led me to the academic world. Um, and I guess I embarked on postgraduate study quite late um, in that whole process. It wasn't ever something I started out with the intention of doing and somehow found myself here. Um, and so, as a, a mature student, um, I think I've got quite a deep learning about what it's been like to be a student because it was a new thing for me when mm -hmm. I started doing that. Um, but it also meant that um, my progress through that postgraduate work was probably potentially faster but also quite different. Mm -hmm. um, as we've spoken before, Rachel, um, you'll know that I haven't got an undergraduate degree and I never actually managed to complete a master's because we converted it to a PhD. So it's it's quite an unusual set of um, qualifications that I own. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that um, anybody else needs to shortcut things. Um, <laughs> it's 
just you're not going different... to be giving away secrets in terms <laughs> of how to shortcut straight to a PhD. No, I think part of that was more around my own um, restlessness and frustration at being constrained by what was um, would have been a master's project. In the end, we realised it was far bigger than it, a master's project could possibly be, and, mm. and we were lucky enough to be able to convert it. So, yeah, so quite a, a varied background, um, and it's really... I really enjoy the fact that not only have I had that experience, but I can use that experience to teach my students now. Mm. Um, and it's not that long ago that I've forgotten what it's like to be a student. Um, yeah, not that mature. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting you say that you never intended to go on and study, and I think that's probably quite a common theme for most of us who do. Mm. Um, you know, I don't th- well, I'm sure there are people out there who intend to carry on, so often quite early on, I think, and go and head into a higher degree of some sort. Mm. However, a lot of us just kind of fall into it along the way, either because we think we should or the pressure is on to sort of try and do some postgraduate learning. Mm. Um, What eventually clicked for you and what do you think was the driving factor? Um, I think it was a thirst to know more. Um, I recognise that as a nursing profession, it's really important that we behave like professionals and part of that is... Um, postgraduate study I believe it's important for us to show the rest of the world that actually nurses are valuable and um, and that we are as capable of that level of academic ability as anybody else is and I think anybody that's out there as a nurse who thinks that they're for want of a better phrase not good enough should reevaluate that view um, I don't consider myself especially smart <laughs> and yet I now have a doctorate so um, it's not about being academically brilliant it's about having a thirst for knowledge wanting to know more wanting to um, find a way to make um, situations better for our patients um, and having the determination and the perseverance to do that Um, and I think it all started for me um, out of just a fascination with what I was doing and wanting to find out more and it wasn't something that I could get from a clinical environment Mm. Um, as wonderful as our nurse educators are in the hospital environment, um, they can't always meet your, your educational needs or your knowledge needs. It's just not possible to do that. You have to go out there and do that for yourself. Um, and postgraduate study is a way to do that. Mm. My intention was to finish a postgrad cert <laughs> and, and gain some intensive care papers. And that was as far as I saw at the time. Um, but yeah, it's a bit addictive. <laughs> and so when you started doing your postgrad papers, you were based in the intensive care still yep. and working? Yep. Yep. And young family at that time? Or Hadn't quite just got before? that far. It's just before young family. Um, and so I did my postgraduate diploma prior to having um, my son. Um, but I embarked on my master's and then PhD. When I started that, he was three. Um, yeah. So the the majority of his growing up so far has been <laughs> mum's been at school. <laughs> exactly, um, and I think that's you know often another theme, isn't it, for nurses mm. who are studying? Is often it's at that time of your life where you do have a family, or you're starting a family, or thinking about having a family. So maybe that's something we'll come back to as well about how you cope with the multiple demands on your time mm. and how you can quite successfully weave um, higher education and work and a family together mm. and not lose your sanity completely. Yeah, it is possible. It is possible, people. You can do it. It just takes planning. 
So tell us about falling into the uh, trap or onto the path of undertaking your PhD. What was the the catalyst for that? Um, part of it was wanting to finish what I'd started. Um, I was particularly interested at the time that I finished my postgrad papers in the um, the process that patients experienced as patients, and in particular respiratory patients that I'd cared for. So I found I was really interested in in the experiences they had and the information that they could provide to us as evidence of of what it was like to be a patient in a particular environment. Um, and so I became interested then in well, what what did we mean by evidence? Um, and at the time, I realised that a lot of the literature is sleep medicine in particular, where I was, uh, the area I'm interested in, was very quantitatively focused and very little information or evidence existed around what patients had to say, mm-hmm. which seemed wrong to me. <laughs> it didn't make any sense because we send our patients away with treatment that then they manage at home or by themselves, having had a really short contact time with mm-hmm. us as healthcare professionals. They do it for themselves. and um, So I wanted to know, well, how did they do that? Um, and so that started me off. That was my question. What was it like living with CPAP for sleep apnea? I wanted to know what they had to tell us. Mm. Um, and in in fact, what they have to say about that is really important for us as healthcare professionals to understand. But through that process, I realised I found the methodological side of doing research fascinating. I'm a qualitative researcher. Um, and I found all of the qualitative methodologies and the way we think as a really good fit to who I am and what I do, mm. um, there was a congruence there with my philosophies and and, I, and again, the topic of philosophy was something I hadn't encountered before um, and there's, there are lots of stories within that um, area of, of knowledge and it's fascinating and I loved it. Mm. I, I guess I'm essentially a bit nosy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that helps if you want to get into research. It certainly helps if you want to be a nurse you have to be nosy. You have to ask questions of your patients. You have to see things and, and wonder about them. Yeah. Um, and you can't be a researcher if you don't see things and wonder about them. I think that's um, you know, a really good point to raise is what makes nurses good researchers? Because I, I and same as you, I instinctively think that nurses make wonderful researchers because we are nosy. Um, you know, we want to know why things work or we want to know why things don't work or we want to know what the experience is of something for mm. people. Um, what sorts of other sort of traits do you think nurses have that make them great researchers or head down that route? Um, I think you have to be tenacious. Ten- tenacity is really important in a lot of, of careers, but I think in nursing you do have to be tenacious because you can't take everything on face value when you're looking after people. Um, you need to be able to read what's going on with your patient, and if you've not got the perseverance or the tenacity to, to stick with something when it's gotten tricky, um, then you're not going to get to the bottom of something with either your patient or with a research topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so perseverance and tenacity. Perseverance in particular, I think, is a really important trait. Um, as you know, Rachel, it's an endurance event, doing something <laughs> like a doctorate. Um, and so you need to have the kind of qualities that mean you'll stick at something when it gets tough. Mm. Um, and if you're determined, and it's an, an area of passion, again, passion something that's really important. Um, most nurses are passionate about what they do. Mm. They're passionate about their patients. 
um, and achieving good outcomes. And most researchers are equally passionate about their areas of interest. And I think you can't do that happily without the passion. Mm, mm. So yeah, tenacity, perseverance and passion. That sounds like a perfect combination. (laughs) (laughs) And I think having that passion for your topic is what keeps you engaged in the whole process along the way, doesn't it? And kind of makes meaning of it for you, helps you through the dark days Mm -hmm. and actually makes you see purpose in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you um, sort of start down the road of the PhD in terms of finding people to help you? So, you know, perhaps your supervision team... Yeah, um, I don't think you can overstate the importance of your supervision team. Um, The people that you have with you, you're going to have with you for quite a number of years. um, And it's really important to identify someone who's got an interest in your topic, has got methodological knowledge, um, and that you like. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, I think that's having someone that you can relate to is really important. I asked a lot of questions of a number of people who knew various different supervisors um, who they thought might be good and useful and helpful who also knew me Um, and so they would then not um, offer an option of somebody that may not quite fit with Mm. my personality Um, and as it turned out I ended up with two supervisors who are fantastic um, one was methodologically trained and the other one um, met slight methodological congruence but also um, a lot of experience in research mm. um, and walking PhD students through the process so she was great. I think that's really important isn't it it's not just someone who is familiar with your area of interest but it's also having that uh, person who knows the ins and outs of the university side or the submission side or how to write the jolly yeah. thing up isn't it yeah. yeah and so I had quite a nice balanced um, um, supervision team I had one supervisor with a lot of experience a one supervisor who was fresh out of doing her PhD herself and so had a really clear memory of what it was like mm. um, and that worked really really well yeah so somebody who's sort of smart somebody who has all the the knowledge but people you'd still go out and have a drink with and so you know you'd be able to get on with on a day-to-day basis yeah and I think that's really important especially for people like nurses because it's not always possible to do your PhD full-time and for those people I started my PhD as part-time um, and you do that in the knowledge that you're going to be at it for eight years thereabouts. That's a really long period of time mm. to spend with um, a particular supervisory group. So it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> being able to get on with your supervisors, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, and over time, you develop the relationship. It doesn't have to be an instant friendship, but um, it certainly you don't want to end up with somebody that um, you're not happy with. Um, and so it takes work. Yeah. Um, it's really important to make expectations of the relationship clear at the outset. Um, that's certainly something I'd recommend to anybody is to actually have a document that you've all agreed on that outlines how you're going to go through the processes and procedures. Mm-hmm. And that's things like how quickly someone can look at a piece of your writing. Um, um, I work part-time, so I always let my students know that if you're going to send me something today, I might not actually receive it for another three or four days because I might not be here. Um, So understanding what people's lead times are like, how quickly they can get through things, whether you want 
both supervisors to look at information at the same time or one after the other. Um, mm. We had a really good system going where I had one supervisor who could get things turned around incredibly quickly and one supervisor who was a tad slower. And so the first supervisor looked through things and sent them to the second supervisor who took a bit more time. And that worked really, really well. And I always knew that I'd get it back with both sets of comments on it. Mm. Um, so it's really important to set up expectations like that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's often the, the issues you hear, isn't it, from other students, um, is around that sort of trying to marry up expectations and particularly around timelines. You know, everyone's always busy. But like you say, starting out with really clear guidelines at the beginning, um, I like the idea of having it documented <laughs> so that everyone is clear, but you also have that documentation to go back to should you ever have an issue yeah. um, is really important. How about things like supervisory meetings? How often would you get together as a group? That's a tricky question to answer because I think it has a lot to do with the needs of the student as well. Um, I met with my supervisors once a month mm -hmm. um, and they were very happy with that and it certainly ever didn't seem a problem. I'd have loved to see them every week. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that had more to do with my insecurities than it ever did with my ability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd have loved to see them every week. Um, so monthly with something like a PhD is fine, so long as you as the student are prepared to actually crack on and get on with it. Um, Having that monthly deadline was really helpful for me because I knew that I had a month in which to do whatever work we'd agreed upon yep. needed doing. Um, I have some students now who I see monthly, some who I see fortnightly. So, And it depends if it's uh, a master's piece, if you're part-time, if you're full-time. So those things all need mm. to be taken into consideration when you're deciding on frequency yeah and also looking at the scope of the project i guess mm -hmm. too length of time with it you know like you say full-time part-time yeah um and everyone's availability do you did you write up minutes from the meetings and things like that or have yep. agendas i did every meeting we had an agenda um and I didn't necessarily always have that sent out to my supervisors prior, but I had it with me so that we could go through it in the hour that we had. Um, if there was anything that I needed to have addressed in between times, it was really easy to email mm. them. And I'm quite happy for my students to do that. Um, but what was really important was making, um, an, making a note of what we discussed and what we decided during our meetings. And I always circulated that back to both my supervisors afterwards. Mm. It kept a record of everything we said. That's particularly important because whether you're doing it full or part-time, um, it's still a long time. Yeah. And the decisions you make in year one might be quite different to year three. <laughs> and it's really important to track the process, your research design or your research decisions and to understand why you might have changed your mind about something or why your supervisors changed their minds. Yeah. Um, or that they change their minds. Um, Often so it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you, you know, I've had students say to me, "Oh, I thought thought we agreed this back then," and you're like, "Yeah, well, we did, but now it's changed because of maybe something else has changed, mm. or because people have forgotten over time what the rationale was back at the beginning." Mm. So having yeah. that sort of audit trail, almost, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's really important, and I think that's the right word as well, audit trail. Um, most research methodologies, when you're writing up something like a doctorate in particular, um, but when, even when you're writing up um, for publication, require that there's some way of replication of what you've done, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. 
And if you don't know what you decided when, that's really difficult. And it's always is about being transparent in your research processes. And being transparent means that you can have surety of, of rigour and robustness in your whole research process. So practising that from the get-go with supervisors, I think, is really important and documenting what you've decided and when. Mm. Yeah, um, being able to go back to it. And yeah. particularly, you know, when you finally get your thesis in and you get to defend it and you can go back through all your notes just to reassure yeah. yourself that what you've decided is sort of, you know, what's replicated in your thesis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also really nice because you can track your own development. Mm. Um, and it's I find it really a little bit disturbing and very exciting to see the difference in my writing, for example, or my understanding about my methodology. What I wrote as part of my research proposal at the very beginning is nowhere near what I'd write now mm. if I rewrote it. And so it's really interesting to see how you track over time and all of the learning that happens. It's really easy to forget where you came from. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important to remember where you came from because then you're in a better position to help students mm. going forward. Um, and it's just fun to know, to see. See that all that learning. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting you spoke about, um, you know, developing your methodology along the way too, as you were doing your study and more understanding of the whole grounded theory. Mm. Um, and I recall doing mine too and my supervisor saying, you know, what's your methodology? And me thinking, I have no idea, you know. I sort of didn't have anything to bring to the piece with me and it was one of those things that sort of almost had to be belted into me but certainly learned <laughs> over time in terms of um, it was something I'd never thought of mm. and it's all that prior knowledge that you have and your whole worldview as we know yeah. informing your research but I suspect that not many um, students when they start a higher degree actually have any understanding of what their worldview is. <laughs> mm. No I totally agree with that um, and I think that's one of the really cool things about doing something like a master's or a doctorate. It gives you some time and some space to actually think about, um, well, why do I think like this? Mm. Um, and especially as nurses, I think as part of our career pathways and the way the training occurs, there's a heavy focus on quantitative evidence in what we learn. Um, and that's not to say that's bad, but I think it can sometimes constrain our thinking and stop us asking questions mm. about what we read. Um, and it's understandable at the outset when you're training as a nurse because there's so much information and learning that has to happen for you to be a safe practitioner in your first year um, but I think then the opportunities unfold to explore those ideas of for example evidence-based practice more and to actually say well is this practice-based evidence as well what do our patients think of this because the numbers stack up but our patients aren't doing it what's going on mm. um so and within that you've also got that philosophical stance which i think those people that aren't familiar with it think of it as airy fairy and fluffy when actually it's really substantial yeah and it makes a difference because it helps us understand why we learn about evidence-based practice from a quantitative perspective at the beginning and it helps us critique that information better, mm -hmm. I think, as we become more aware of our worldview, as you say, um, you know, our philosophical stances and how we look mm -hmm. at the world. Um, and that's really important because there's no point doing research that doesn't fit with your own personal feelings about the world. Um, 
it's it's really hard. I'm a qualitative researcher and I'm having to embark on some quantitative research, which is shredding my tissues a little bit um, because I don't think like that. Um, I look at numbers and say, well, hang on a minute, but what, what, what do my patients say about this? Mm. Um, so while it's useful evidence and the two methodologies are really valuable, equally valuable in my view, um, if you don't think in a particular way, it's quite hard to step into both. Do you think that as nurses we actually practice very qualitatively anyway and therefore, you know, because we're constantly sort of looking at how a patient reacts, not necessarily in terms of numbers but how they're looking, how they're kind of feeling within themselves, how they're expressing themselves, um, how does that then translate into research in terms of sort of defining that or mm. describing that? Mm. I think intuitively nurses are, in the main, qualitative in their outlook. Um, and that's about that's not necessarily about being a qualitative researcher. It's more about being able to understand that someone's experience of a thing may well be different to your experience of the same thing. Um, and so that's all about a relative experience of the world. Um, and I think nurses are intuitively sensitive to the fact that patients have different experiences and I think we're really good at watching a patient and knowing that okay a pain score six out of ten is really really unsettling for this person whereas this person over here is quite happy with it and Mm -hmm. you don't need to necessarily ask patients to know that you don't need to know the number (laughs) yeah um and so I think it's a lot of nurses are comfortable with qualitative methodologies for that reason without really realising that they were uncomfortable with quantitative mm-hmm. methodology mm-hmm. Um, and I'm certainly conscious that I was trained at a time where evidence-based practice was the new thing um, it was all out there and you needed to be able to prove some with numbers otherwise it wasn't it wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. um, so and I always I always knew I was slightly uncomfortable with how things sometimes were implemented because the numbers said that was what we Mm. should do. Why aren't our patients doing it? Um, Because the numbers say it should happen. And and so, and I think there's a number of nurses out there that probably feel the same way. Um, And and not just nurses either, I know I've met medical colleagues and um, physio colleagues that have that same level of dissonance. and it's really important to listen to that if you're thinking about an academic pathway because you have to understand that your worldview needs to be congruent with your methodology or at least understand that it's not if you're going to try and do something um, different. different. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So in terms of when you were studying, so your son started out quite young yeah, yeah. <laughs> and grew alongside mm-hmm. your degree. How did you manage to sort of fit everything in? So you were still working at the time as well as studying? I worked part I worked part time, studied part time and parented full time. <laughs> um, it was obviously support from family is really important and I've got a fantastic mother in law, so that made life a lot easier because none of that would have happened without her support. Um, yeah, and not many people would say that, having a wonderful mother-in-law, so <laughs> <laughs> she must be fantastic. She's pretty fantastic, um, very accommodating. Um, and so that made a big difference, I think. Um, and if you 
I guess my advice to people whenever I meet new students that I'm going to supervise, I always have a conversation about what else have you got going on in your life? Who have you got at home? Um, how do you plan to do your study? Um, and my supervisor was really good because she often said around the Christmas period, right, you have to not do this for a month. Um, you are to take a break. She didn't do that very often. Um, but um, there, were t- there were points at which she said, right, to let it alone and that I was full-time studying by that point mm. um, so yeah identifying the resources that you have yourself is really yeah. important um, one of the things that I recognized once we had converted my master's to a PhD was that um, my weekends were became very precious prior to that I was working at least one day of my weekends on my my thesis um, and knowing that it was going to be a master's, it was a short period of time, mm. but then it became a PhD. I thought, eight, eight years doing this? I don't think so. Um, so I reevaluated the situation and applied for scholarship. Obviously, not everybody has that um, yeah. um, ability to do that, but it was something that I did at the time. And so I think being very conscious of what um, is important and what your priorities are around your time is really important. So it's not just necessarily the ability to apply for a scholarship per se, but it was about recognising I needed to change something. Mm. So you need to be really aware of where your priorities are, but where, in what direction you're feeling pulled, where the pressures are as well. Um, and understanding, so for me it was really important that I'm as good a parent as, as I can be, and that comes first, as it would do for most parents, I think. Um, and I'm in a position where I could take the scholarship. Um, for my students, it's about saying, right, let's sit down and plan out your time. Planning out a timeline for your study is really important part of that. Um, if you don't know what needs to happen by when, mm. then you'll just end up in a high-pressured mess because you don't, you can't chunk it up. And chunking up your workload is a really smart way of identifying how quickly something needs to happen. So it's all about deadlines, basically. You set a timeline up, you set up your deadlines, so you know what you're working towards, and you can pace yourself. That's probably one of the most important things for me. I felt I managed to pace myself really, really well, so it wasn't this massive rush at the end. Mm. Um, I think that's what unravels people when they feel like they've got this massive rush on. Um, and uh, being able to tick things off as you go yeah. along, it's so satisfying, isn't Absolutely. it? You know, if you know you've met your deadline, it's done, it's in the bag, it just needs you mm. know, a final review or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think you actually feel as though you're getting somewhere. Yeah. I think that appeals to the nursing side as well a little bit. You know, you well, think yeah. back to your days planning, you know, yeah. when you're going to do your dressings, when you're going to do whatever. Mm. Um, you're actually getting your to-do list ticked off yeah. along the way. And I think completing a task is a milestone. And identifying and celebrating your milestones is really important. Um, and so knowing what your milestones are and having written them down. I had a spreadsheet. I was a bit geeky about it all. <laughs> <laughs> and a little red line that went yep. across it. Um, but, I mean, that kept me sane. Mm, knowing yep. what I had coming, what I'd done, seeing where I'd gone. Yeah. Um, I it think, probably keeps the family sane as well because, yeah. you know, if you can show them that you're actually progressing along the way and that you are getting closer to the end yeah. and that you'll have more time available in six months' time, mm. then, you know, it is sort of satisfying for everyone. Yeah. And also being, like you say, celebrating those milestones, hugely important, mm. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, and I think it's important if you've got yourself a timeline, you can then see, well, that looks like a really good point to take a break and, and planning in your holidays and actually have a break. Mm. Um, there's a joke that anybody embarked on a PhD doesn't have a social life or a holiday life. <laughs> and sometimes it's a little bit true, but I think it's really important to make space for it. Yeah. Um, I think that's often what puts people off doing more education or, you know, higher degrees, isn't it? That fear that... You hear these stories about people who take 10 years to do their PhD. They're up till 4 a.m. every night, Mm. you know, in tears over their books. Well, probably not books these days, but, um, you know, working so, so, so hard. And it doesn't have to be like that. Not at all. Like you say, if you manage your time, um, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of give and take. (laughs) The old stressful moment. But, um, you know, looking at ways of how you can manage your time, I think it's really important. Self-discipline is really important. I think nurses are really good at that. Um, To have done a nurse training, you had to have been self-disciplined because otherwise you wouldn't have got your assignments in um, on time. So having the self-discipline to say, right, today I sit down for six hours and I have to attend to this particular task or this piece of writing or this piece of coding or whatever it happens to be um, and saying, right, this is the day that I do this and not get distracted by the dog or the kids or the email from work. Um, (laughs) Procrastination, (laughs) I think it's called. It is. Um, And that's not to say that um, I didn't manage to procrastinate because I did. (laughs) But it's yep. knowing that, okay, I'm procrastinating today, so I'm going to have to pay for this at some point. Yeah. Um, and it's it's having that self-awareness and self-discipline to say, right, I fluffed about today. <laughs> Tomorrow I'm going to have to knuckle down. Pay for it, yeah. yeah. And do you think sort of um, building in a little bit of annual leave, if you have the ability to, mm. to, you know, take a week off every so often just to get your head into exactly what you're doing? Yeah. Rather than sort of trying to, um, you know, do a couple of hours in the evening here and a couple of hours mm. in the evening there. I mean, I think there's possibly benefits, um, you know, of either approach. But what yeah. what do you think is a good way? I think it depends on what it is that needs to be produced at the time. Um, there are tasks within your PhD that can be done in a couple of hour chunks here and there. You can do a section of an ethics um, application in a couple of hours here, a couple of hours there, but then say, right, I'm going to have a whole day to review the whole document. Um, Whereas if you're doing a piece of analysis, qualitative analysis, I found that actually knowing I had a whole week of dedicated time where I could keep my train of thought going um, was, was beneficial to try and do something like that an hour here and an hour there is incredibly difficult because you don't always hold on to the thoughts you were having Mm. Um, this is why writing everything down is really important because you capture what you're thinking in the moment because to tell you now tomorrow you'll have forgotten what it was and you'll kick yourself that you didn't write it down Um, and so I this is off topic a tad but I used to carry around notebook with me or, or pieces of paper or write on anything I had to hand if an idea came to me, and they come to you in weird places, yep. driving in the supermarket. Um, 4 a.m. 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> when you wake up. Um, so, yes, yeah, so in terms of how you manage your time, it's one of it's it's quite hard to say you must do it in a particular mm-hmm. way because we're all slightly different. I know that if I was going to have to do a big piece of work or I had something like um, an article that I wanted to write, that... A big chunk of time, days at a time, was the best way to do it. It's not always possible to do that. 
Um, certainly now that I'm an academic, I don't have that um, that privilege of being able to sit for long yeah. stretches of time. Um, and so you do have to learn how to write smart. Um, and if you happen to have a couple of hours at your sleeve, you just have to decide, well, what am I going to use them for? Um, certainly I don't think I could do that with a, a doctorate again. But I don't know, because I've only done one. Yeah. No plans for a second then. No, <laughs> no, don't need to do that again. <laughs> so mm. talking and sort of segue quite nicely into the whole writing um, mm-hmm. topic. So writing doesn't necessarily come easily to everybody. Are you a natural writer? Did you struggle with it? I am so not a natural writer. Um, I think there were very few people in um, academia who would claim to be brilliant at writing from the very beginning or who are natural writers. Um, my, one of my supervisors really enjoys writing and is prolific, which was a tiny bit intimidating, but um, I certainly wasn't brilliant at it. Um, and it's, it was quite interesting because I thought I was. Because of the grades that I'd gotten as part of my postgraduate papers, I thought, oh, I'm okay at this writing lark, not too bad. Um, but in comparison to how I write now, now I was I was rubbish. Um, so it's 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 an interesting view of writing ability. I certainly wasn't bad at writing. I don't mm. think. Um, certainly got myself through all my assignments without any difficulty in my postgraduate papers and never offended anybody to my knowledge. <laughs> um, but looking back on how I used to write, I realise that it cert- I certainly wasn't economical with words, and there were certain English language rules that. I don't think we taught well. Yeah. Um, I know I spend time now with my undergraduate students teaching them because it makes writing so much easier if you know the difference between active and passive voice, for example. It makes a massive difference to the clarity of writing. Um, and little rules like um, a comma before which, no comma before that. Um, they're, they're little things, but they make a big difference when you're writing academically, mm. particularly because you want your reader to understand what you're saying quickly. Um, You don't want your reader, whether they're a publisher or an examiner, to work at understanding what you said. Um, And so the art of writing's really important skill that you learn. I always talk about apprenticing Mm. as a writer. Um, And I certainly, I think my learning curve was pretty steep. Um, And as, as you... As you learn, you learn to self-edit as well. Mm. Um, you see the mistakes you're making as you make them and can self-edit. So I write faster now than I ever did at the beginning yeah. because I know how to structure my sentences. I know what a paragraph should look like. I know what a topic sentence is now. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but now you do. And now I do. And was there anything in particular that you found useful or helpful to learning how to write? Mm. So there's lots of resources out there for um, people who are wanting to write academically or for publication. Writing for publication is a different beast. Mm. Um, Academic writing and writing for publication are quite different things. Your audience is different, the purpose is different, so your writing style needs to be different. Um, There's, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about commercial applications but grammarly.com is fantastic don't write anything without it so that's grammarly.com um the university of auckland have got some really interesting um resources available um the service the, the student center and the center for learning have got some great um 
study sessions that you can attend. And there's also something called the writer's diet, which is a fun thing to play with um, and tells you if your writing's um, stodgy or not. Nice. Um, trim. <laughs> and that's stodgy. available online? That's or? available online, yeah. yeah. So um, that's quite that's quite a fun thing to play as long as you've got a reasonably thick skin because <laughs> it'll tell you what it thinks without any emotion. Um no matter how hard and how much heart and soul you've poured into something, it'll tell you if it's firm or flabby, I think the words are. Um. <laughs> it can be depressing. <laughs> it can be. It can be quite funny. Um, I think a sense of humour. Sense of humour. Shall yeah. I just add that in there somewhere? You need a sense of humour if you're doing any of this stuff. Um, so there's lots of blogs and posts around writing theses. Um, Pat Thompson's got a particularly good one. So that's Thompson without a P. Mm-hmm. Um, and she writes some really helpful um, work around the structure of paragraphs about how to write a discussion about how to write an introduction the kinds of things you should find in a, a review so I found her blogs really really helpful mm-hmm. um, so yeah those things off the top of my head no those are some really useful tips actually mm-hmm. so yeah I might have to <laughs> have a look. try and have a look at yeah. some of those next time I'm writing yeah. something yeah, yeah and I think the other thing that helped me with my writing um, was actually writing publications not everybody chooses to do that when they do um, a doctorate but um, I'd heartily recommend it mm-hmm. um, because writing for publication publications a challenge and it's different um, it's really useful to do that with the support of your supervisors. Um, typically, for those people that don't do a doctorate with publication and just write their thesis straight as it is, it's an expectation after that that you then publish. And typically, that's done without so much support, and it's a lot harder, I think. Um, but the other really nice thing about um, publishing as you go along is you get the feedback from your reviewers mm. when you submit um, again you need to develop a thick skin because they'll tell it like it is um, and you need to, to lick your wounds a bit and get back on with it but generally speaking the feedback that you get from reviewers is is invaluable because they'll critique your writing the content and at the end of the day it makes your article that much better even if they've rejected it at the outset, next time round it'll be a better article and likely um, to be accepted. And if that article's going in your thesis, it means that your examiner will see this has been peer-reviewed and it makes their life easier. Yeah. And it gives a lot more credence to what is in your thesis when you come to defend it. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to be said, I think, for theses with publication. Oh, no, I have to agree. And I suspect that um, for those of us who have headed down that route we're quite strong proponents of it because you know having your publications underway as you've gone through not having to turn around at the end Mm -hmm. like you say and then go back and do them is quite appealing as well Um, and I think what you say you know a thesis whether it's master's level or PhD level any piece of work like that is is your baby and learning to become just sort of not engaged in the process and or not as passionate about it and become disengaged from it so that you can look at it quite objectively mm, mm. Um, is really hard because mm. this is your baby. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like saying to your child, you know, actually I'm not really that interested in you. I'll just look at you from behind the window, not, you know, in yeah. the same room. Um, and, you know, can be quite challenging for people to actually be able to 
step away from it, look at it objectively and not be offended from the feedback that Mm. you receive. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's really important to realise that there's nobody that you encounter or that reads your work that doesn't want you to succeed, Mm. no matter how harsh the feedback appears. Um, I remember sending my first piece of writing to my supervisors and feeling really, really downhearted when I got all of their responses back thinking oh my word I thought I did far better than this and I obviously did um but you do you just realize actually it's all about them wanting you to succeed and helping you grow and it's the same with reviewers it's the same with examiners um no one's got an interest in you failing no um it's all about moving you forward yeah um even if it feels devastating at the time always reminds me of this cartoon of peer review and you're walking you know down this alley with people beating you with sticks (laughs) on either side and um, I think that's often how the process feels even though you know that it's done for the good of the article the good of the journal Mm -hmm. the good of the readers whatever it's um, still a very sort of threatening um, process isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and it's really good to do that to go through that process and begin that process with the support of fantastic supervisors because it doesn't end for academics. Um, and I mean, you can send an article that you think is amazing, that your co-authors think is amazing and should be published to a journal who it just doesn't fit in that moment, in that time, yeah. for that reviewer, and it comes back to you. And so back to the tenacity and perseverance, you need those to do a doctorate. Well, there's a good reason for that because I tell you, you definitely need them to be an academic. <laughs> So currently you're working in the school mm-hmm. and teaching in the undergraduate program. That's right. And what sorts of um, classes are you teaching in that? So I teach um, across the whole of the undergraduate program, first, second and third years. Um, I run one of the first year papers. Um, and so I encounter the students as they go through the whole program, really. So my, my areas of interest are respiratory care. But I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, so I can teach all sorts of things <laughs> based on an eclectic um, yeah. career. And so, yeah. how is the future of nursing looking from the students that are coming through? Are we... Exciting. I think I see, from what I remember as being a student nurse, the student nurses we have now are so much more conscious of what they're doing, so much better informed, I think, because of how they're taught, but also because. I think because we as lecturers are becoming more academic, more of us are embarking on our um, doctorates and and completing master's theses, I think it reflects then onto our students and they understand the value in doing postgraduate study Mm. and where it can take you. Um, And I think it's really exciting at the moment because a number of our students have shown an interest in writing for publication and being involved with research. We've got a summer scholarship programme and we really encourage our nurses to take part in that, which is fantastic. Um, Because not only does it help them understand how they can use research in clinical practice, but how they can actually do it. And that nurses can, we should, in fact, be doing as much research as we possibly can. We're right there at the front line with our patients. Um, And so I think it's really important that we take the reins with research in clinical practice Mm. as well. Um, So, yeah drag people into it along the way absolutely yeah show them it's not too scary no it's not it's not it's it's not it's not easy it's not simple but it's certainly not scary and it's certainly not beyond our reach as a profession to do that and I think we owe it to ourselves to get involved I think it it is a a professional responsibility isn't it yeah Mm. yeah 
And so outside of work, so work isn't, you know, 24-7 thing, it believe not. it or not. No, <laughs> no. I've, like I say, my, my son was very happy when I did finish my doctorate. He was quite proud, bless him. <laughs> sweet bee. Um, and so, yeah, so family life continues. Um, and what sorts of things do you do to keep yourself happy, healthy, engaged in life? <laughs> um, well, I like the outdoors, a bit of skiing, a bit of mountain biking. Um, I do lots of things, I've got a dog. Um, so lots of play, lots of sport. Um, my son's an avid reader, an avid movie watcher. So there's, it's, there's lots of things we do that has nothing to do with study. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, really important for him and for my husband as well, because um, obviously Toby's got an education pathway in front of him at the moment. Um, I have to be quite careful not to expect him to go to university. Although I want him to. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Toby. No pressure. Um, so, yeah, so, and yeah. yeah, I think making sure that um, I don't take, not taking work home is really important. Um, I know lots of people find that really tempting to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very clear about where my boundaries are. And I think that's one of the things that kept me saying during my doctorate is to say, this is my, this is my doctorate time, this is my family time. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, have imaginary boundaries around those those times mm. um, and say so, right this this weekend is a weekend for my family um, and that's I mean I carry on doing that now. Do you yeah. have any particular routines at the end of the day as you leave work and before you get home in order to switch off sort of make that mental transition? Turn off my computer yeah. is always really helpful. <laughs> no I close everything down, yep. switch off the computer Say goodbye to everybody. Yeah. Um, and by the time I've got in the car, I'm having a conversation with my husband about something completely different. <laughs> Who's buying the milk on the way home? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's quite funny actually. I notice it um a lot. I kind of have to switch heads. Mm. You I, you probably know what I mean. Parent me is different to nurse me mm-hmm. and academic me. Um, and it was the same when I did my doctorate. I had student me. Mm. Um. And that was different. I was a different person and I functioned differently. Um, obviously, I wasn't a different person, but it kind of helped for me to think of, of flicking a switch. Mm. And when I leave the building, it's, okay, what needs to happen for Toby? Um, what are we doing tonight? When am I doing dinner? What are we having for dinner? Yeah. Um, you start to think about things that aren't related to what you've been doing all day. Mm. Um, that's not to say it's always easy to switch off, but I sometimes find myself thinking about work. But it's, I try my best not to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to. It is, especially yeah. when you're passionate about something. Mm. And if I've got a piece of analysis or a piece of writing that I'm in the middle of, I'm more likely not to switch off quite so well. Um, yeah. So. And so what's the next step for Kim Ward? <laughs> so, um, so when you finish a doctorate, it doesn't end there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. Um, it's then, it's all about developing your academic career. So I'm what you'd describe as an emerging researcher. Um, and um, the focus is on publishing, but developing your academic your research platform. So um, I've got, I've secured a couple of little grants to help with that. Um, and it's, it's, it's like doing another PhD, but you call it developing your academic pathway instead. Um, and it's just about carrying on doing research, developing projects. Um, I've secured uh, a role with um, the Liggins Institute for 
a fixed term that's um, helping me develop some of my qualitative skills, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool. So it's being open to opportunities as well. Um, it's it's a challenging place to be um, because it is a little bit like juggling two jobs when you're an academic mm-hmm. because you've a teaching commitment as well as a research commitment. Um, and having had to balance my time during my doctorate has helped me balance my time as an academic. And again, it comes down to scheduling time and sticking to it. Um, but yeah, um, it's a it's a long game. Doing a PhD is a long game. It's an endurance event and that doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to know that nothing's going to happen, especially quickly, which for someone like me isn't always that easy to accept. Um, I like things to happen fast. Yeah. So... And I'm sure you found the same is, is getting traction with a project and getting things moving isn't always a quick thing. Oh, exactly. It all takes time, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. yeah. And identifying the next opportunity, mm. whether it's um, in terms of a research project or the funding um, for it, yeah. is, you know, just as time consuming yeah. and challenging. And I think one of, if I was going to give some advice to a PhD student in their third year, I'd be talking about actually making connections and relationships within your area Um, your topic area because it's those serendipitous moments where you've got a relationship with somebody that turn into a research project Um, so for example we had a visiting scholar a couple of years ago from Sheffield University and based on the conversations that we had when he came over we now are doing a meta-analysis grounded theory looking at chronic conditions um, and we're doing that's an international collaboration that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't just gone Mm. and started chatting with um, with Tony so um, it's it's about taking opportunities that are presented to you and, and not ignoring them um, no matter how challenging they yeah. may seem or how yeah. scary or um, often they don't even look like an opportunity mm. at the time either do they mm, yeah. you just don't know and sometimes it doesn't come to anything but you just don't know when it will mm. um, and so putting yourself out there and making the effort is really important yeah it's not just about being at conference either. It's about you know meeting with colleagues, taking the opportunity to do a little presentation um, in a little clinical area. You just don't know where it's going to take you. Mm. Um, and for me, it certainly helped me with my grant application because now um, the hospital across the road have got this monstrous database and I've got permission to go and play with it. Um, so it's very exciting. Oh, cool. Well, you know, good luck for that. And thank you, um, thank you so much for talking to us today. You're and very welcome. I'm sure there will be lots of interest and we will continue to follow your pathway and see where this all takes you. So thank that you. That would be very exciting. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Kim. I hope you enjoyed that. I learned so much just sitting and chatting with Kim and exploring ideas around qualitative research, something that's a little bit foreign to me. I learned a hugely valuable lesson from Kim too. Don't stop recording until your guest has left the room. Something to remember next time as many gems occur after the official interview has finished. Thanks for listening and if you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. This is early days for this podcast and welcome any feedback. What did you enjoy and who would you like to hear from? Or would you even like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.